Uh, well, take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 this morning. I, I thought as, I, as we start out that I might try to help you out a little bit with your Christmas shopping for this year. Anybody need help with Christmas shopping this year? And uh, particularly if you might be interested in some jewelry for that special one in, in your life. And uh, so here's, here's uh, let me show you this first one here. Uh, this is a necklace that features a particular cross. This is called a Celtic cross, and uh, this is, is metal, and you could actually, this could be yours for just $21, just 21 just cost you $21. Any, any takers? No, 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 okay, all right, all right. Let's take a look at this next one. This is a nine-carat gold cross, nine-carat gold. This one would cost you, however, $89. Take a look at this next one. This is a rose gold and diamond cross. The advertisement for this one actually says, rose gold is very popular now. (laughs) This one would cost you $346. All right. But wait, but wait, but wait. Take a look at this next one. This one is a Constantino cross. This one was specifically designed by an Italian designer. This one is sold by Neiman Marcus, all right? So you can guess we're stepping up and cost you a little bit. This one would cost you, by the way, this is not 9 carat or 14 carat. This one is 18 carat gold and sterling silver. Chain sold separately, however. Sorry about that. <clears throat> This one would cost you $1,360. But just think about how lovely that would look on your loved one, right? Doesn't that look nice? Well, let's take a look at one more picture here. Now, this one would be a little bit difficult to wear around your neck, right? But what I mostly want to let you know about this one is that This one would cost you your life, your life. This passage that we're studying today in Mark's gospel is really the hinge point of his gospel, the hinge point. Verse 34, Jesus said, Then he called the the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, we struggle from, at times for, for, with exactly what this means. We actually try to sometimes sort of tiptoe around this verse and what we are afraid it might mean. But I assure you, the people in Jesus' day knew exactly, exactly what it meant. Because when they saw someone carrying a cross... They knew that that person was on a one-way trip to die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic work, The Call of Discipleship, writes, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Well, let's go back a little bit. 
Let's go back and let's see exactly what led to this defining moment in the ministry of Christ. If you look back with me at verse 27, chapter 8 and verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? Who do people say I am? That is a huge question. That is the question. It is, no, it is just as relevant today as it was then. That is the question that everyone needs to answer. Who do people say? say that I am. We have to get that one right. Verse 28, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say one of the prophets. Now the disciples at this point, what they're telling Jesus is essentially is what the rumors are that are out on the street out there as to who Jesus might be among the people. Now, now just as an aside here, by the way, if you have in your idea most, when you think about Jesus, you think about gentle Jesus, meek and mild. You better go and study the people on this list because there is not a single one of those on that list that could possibly begin to be described as gentle and mild. Well, Jesus is not interested in what everyone else thinks. He wants to know what the disciples think about him. Verse 29, but what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Now, I suspect there were uh, maybe a moment or two of awkward silence here, but then finally one of the disciples speaks up, and who might that be? Guess who? It's Peter. Verse 29, the second part of verse 29, Peter answered, you are the Messiah, now, when Peter says this, I mean, you almost want to stand up and cheer, right? I mean, the other disciples are probably giving him high fives. We know, way to go, bro, way to go. Peter was getting it. But what exactly was he getting? The word Messiah meant the anointed one, the anointed one. In other words, this was the anointed one, the long-expected Messiah that all the Jews hoped would essentially be a superhuman leader who would deliver the Israelites from their, their Roman oppressors, from all their enemies, and establish Jerusalem as the center of the world. However, Peter is about to find out that what he is thinking is not exactly what Jesus is thinking. See, Jesus accepts Peter declaration, Peter's declaration that he's the Messiah, but then he proceeds to turn all the conventional thinking of the Jews about a Messiah completely upside down in a manner that is going to take Peter's breath away. Verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him, he then began to touch he began then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priest and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after 3 days rise again See, Jesus is saying, Peter, yes, you're right. I am the Messiah, but I am not the Messiah that you have in mind. I'm not anything like what you're expecting because I am going to be a Messiah on a cross. See, Jesus is bringing two ideas together here that would have been completely unheard of to this point in Jewish history. 
He says that the Son of Man, which is a, a messianic term from the Old Testament, must suffer. I mean, they would, all, all the Jews standing around would, would have gone, whoa, whoa, what do you mean the, the Messiah must suffer? The Messiah is supposed to save, not to suffer. He is supposed to defeat all the evil in this world, supposed to save. He's supposed to set up God's perfect reign from Jerusalem. But there were other prophecies that had just been overlooked over the years, such as in Isaiah 43, 44, and 53, where this mysterious servant of the Lord is suffering. It's just that no one had ever connected any of those passages with the idea of a Messiah, at least not until Jesus. Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be killed. He's saying, I have to die. It's absolutely necessary that I die. No one can be transformed from the inside out. The world will not be made new unless I die. He's saying, I'm not headed to Jerusalem to rule. I'm headed to Jerusalem to lose. He said, I'm not headed to Jerusalem to conquer sin. I'm headed to Jerusalem. I'm I'm, I'm, that is how I'm, I'm headed to Jerusalem, not to take power, but to lose it. That is how I'm going to conquer sin and evil. But again, here's Peter, who from the time that he was just a little bitty baby bouncing on his mama's knee, was told to be looking for this conquering Messiah, not a suffering one. Verse 32, he, that is Jesus, spoke plainly about this. As we just heard, Jesus laid everything out on the table for them, everything that was going to happen. And Peter, again, who was totally blown away by Jesus' words here, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, that's, that word rebuke that Mark uses here is the same word that he uses to describe it when Jesus rebukes a demon, when Jesus cast out demon, the exact same word. that You can almost see Peter pulling Jesus aside, saying, Peter, saying, saying Jesus, Jesus, come, come here, come here, come here. Jesus, I, I believe that you're the Messiah, but, but, but what you're thinking is all wrong you got to get this right, Jesus. I mean, you're going to lose your credibility. Jesus, you're going to lose the crowds if you keep up this kind of stuff. Last week, we saw where the Pharisees tried to force-fit Jesus into what was also their idea about this conquering Messiah. And then right after that, right after that, how, we saw how Jesus warned the disciples to beware of being influenced by that very kind of thinking. And so Jesus doesn't hesitate here to rebuke Peter right back. <laughs> but he turns around because he wanted all the disciples to hear this and to hear it clearly. Verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You see, Satan would, would love nothing more than for Jesus to fulfill those human desires for a militaristic Messiah. And the last thing that Satan wants is for Jesus to go up to Jerusalem and become the, the redeemer of all mankind, to save people from sin. To be a Messiah on a cross. But to Peter and the disciples, I mean, what Jesus is telling them, again, makes no sense to them at this point. Not, not in, in the human mind. 
I mean, that, that, uh, who would ever design a way to save the world that would include suffering and death and desertion and despair, right? <laughs> if God's Messiah is rejected, suffers, and dies, what good is that going to be? Is what they're thinking. But Jesus said that if you think that way, last part of verse 33, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus doesn't stop there. I mean, wait, there's more. Now he issues a very public challenge regarding his messianic mission. And again, remember at this point, Jesus was wildly popular. I mean, crowds gathering wherever he showed up, huge crowds gathering around him. Verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple... And, and when they heard that phrase, I mean, you could just imagine there were a bunch of people in the audience that would have been, you know, raising their hands up saying, me, 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 pick me, Jesus, pick me. But then he finishes with this sentence, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And that's when the hands quickly come back down. Well, uh, uh, you know what? I, you know, it's getting kind of late. I, 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 think, I, think, I think we need to go home now. <laughs> See, Jesus says not only will he be the Messiah on a cross, will he be the Messiah on a cross, but that anyone who wants to follow him will have to go to the cross too. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Yikes. That cross just keeps getting in the way, doesn't it? I was reading the story earlier this week about a church called the Church of the Holy Cross in New York City. Apparently, thieves broke into the church, and they went into what was called the meditation area where there was a huge crucifix hanging on the wall. You know, a, what makes a crucifix is a crucifix is that it's not just the cross, but it's also Jesus hanging on the cross. And what these thieves did is they they unbolted the four-foot-long, 200-pound statue of Jesus that was hanging on the cross and took Jesus but left the cross behind. The church caretaker, a man named David St. James, was just bewildered by all this, and he said, they, that is the thieves, just decided we're going to leave the cross and take Jesus. We don't know why they just took him. We figure if you want the crucifix, you take the whole crucifix. <laughs> In other words, what Mr. St. James was saying, if you want Jesus, you have to take his cross too. But that's the big question, isn't it? We want Jesus, but do we want his cross too? Do you? To answer that question, we, we need to understand a little bit better about what Jesus means when he says, deny yourself and take up your cross, because there's a lot of misunderstanding about that phrase, is there not? I mean, maybe you remember your Aunt Mabel saying, uh, bemoaning her marriage to Uncle Billy, saying something like, well, I guess he's, he's just my cross to bear. <laughs> or maybe you have a co-worker who suffers from recurring gastritis that, you know, made the comment one day at lunch, uh, I guess it's just my cross to bear. Jesus is talking about voluntarily and intentionally taking up your cross. I mean, those are gross, pun intended, gross misinterpretations of what Jesus means here. 
When Aunt Mabel married Uncle Billy, she didn't intend for him to act that way when they got married, did she? And if your co-worker with a gastritis had a choice about it, he would choose not to have it unless he was some sort of masochist. So what does Jesus mean? He does not mean to seek difficulties in life for the sake of having difficulties, you know, masochist for Jesus. But he does mean to be willing to encounter difficulties if, if it's for the sake of Christ and the gospel. A teenager is a student. Says, I'm not going to get involved in that. I'm not going to go do that. I'm not going to do that activity. I'm not going to engage in that behavior knowing that that behavior is going to dishonor Christ. That's taking up your cross for Christ. An employee gets hassled or even fired by the boss because they refuse to engage in some illegal or unethical business practice. That's taking up your cross. At least those would be typical examples for taking up your cross here in America, here in the West. If you look at other countries around the world, such as Iran, 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 for someone who takes up the cross of Christ in Iran, they understand when they do that, that they may actually be giving their life, their physical death. Jesus actually helps us understand what he means by this statement. He really elaborates on it with the next couple of sentences. Verse 35, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. You see, to deny yourself and take up your cross is to lose your life, to lose yourself, to lose your psyche in Christ. It means to get a new identity in him. Some of you may remember when uh, Dr. Tony Campolo spoke here several years ago. Uh, he, he tells a story, and he, he was a, prof- a longtime professor at Eastern College in Pennsylvania. He tells a story uh, how every year, about the same time of year, which was approaching final exam time, there would always be a parade of students who would, who would come into his office, and they'd sit down, and they'd wipe the brow of their head, there, and they'd say, Doc, 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 I, I, I've just got to get away. I've just got to get out of here. I've got to go find myself, Doc. I've got to go find myself. I've got to get away and and peel away all these uh, uh, prescribed identities that have been given to me by my parents, by my classmates, by my my friends. I've got to get away and peel away all those socially prescribed identities and find myself. He said, strangely enough, he never got any phone calls from any of the students saying, Hey, Doc, I found myself just north of of Colorado Springs. (laughs) Well, he finally started challenging their thinking with this idea. <laughs> he was saying, well, what if, you know, what if you peel away all those socially prescribed identities only to discover that you're an onion? An onion being the sum total of its skins. What if you peel away all those socially prescribed identities only to discover that you are a social onion, that no one is at home? And he would then challenge them with this. Our true self, our true self, is not something that is waiting to be discovered. It is something that is waiting to be created in a commitment to Jesus Christ. 
2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You see, to deny yourself and take up your cross is to get a new identity in Christ, which is exactly what the Apostle Paul, was, no doubt, was reflecting on these words, this statement of Jesus Christ when he said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Well, Jesus continues in verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? He's using language from the business world here. He says, look, do you want your life to really count? Do you want real gain in life? Do you want your, or do you want your life to be a loss? Jesus is saying, I want to give you real gain. Gain that will last forever. And this is how. See, most people try to find their identity in things they think would make them valued and accepted by other people. Now, things like money, success, popularity, status, coolness. In fact, next to wanting to preserve one's physical life, I would suggest that this is probably the most basic instinct. It's to want to feel like we matter to other people. And we think, if I could just gain those kind of things, then I'll, I'll really be somebody. I'll have an identity. But Jesus says, no. He says, that's, that's a lie. That is a deception of the devil. He says, you can gain all those things. In fact, you could even gain the whole world and still forfeit your soul, still lose your identity. Instead, Jesus says, base your identity on me. Deny yourself. Die to self. Lose yourself for me and the gospel. And then, then you'll have a true identity. Let me ask you a question. What, what is the opposite? What's the opposite of denying yourself? I'm going to take it a little deeper than what my typical first response might be to that question, and I'm going to say it's this. That the opposite of denying yourself is actually denying Christ as a Christian. To deny Christ is to live only for me, myself, and I. <laughs> It's living to fulfill my desires, sinful or otherwise, instead of living to fulfill the desires of Christ. In other words, it's living life according to your agenda. Thinking back to Peter, that's exactly what, why he got so upset with Jesus. It was because his agenda for what a Messiah was supposed to do and be did not include going up to Jerusalem to die. But Jesus said, that's, that's human concerns. That's your agenda, Peter, not mine, not God's. He said, Peter, my agenda is the cross. And that's what yours needs to be, Peter. You need to deny yourself, lay aside your agenda, and take up mine. <laughs> take up your cross. I don't know about you, but it's hard to yield to Christ's agenda, isn't it? It's tough. I mean, without even consciously realizing sometimes what we're doing, I think we just sort of substitute Christ for our own personal self-help guru. And we try to use, use him to fulfill our agenda. 
to help us get us where we want to go rather than where he wants us to go. Which, again, is exactly what Peter was trying to get him to do himself. And we deceive ourselves in the process because we, we are actually making Christ part of our agenda to fulfill our agenda. And as we do so, we fool ourselves, we deceive ourselves, we, we, we actually feel like somehow that we are, are engaging in, in following after him by doing so. The classic writer A.W. Tozier said, we're just delighted to have Jesus do all of the sorrowing, all of the suffering, and all of the dying. So let me ask. And think about this before you answer it. With your life, are you seeking Christ's agenda more than your own? Are you seeking his agenda or are you seeking yours? Now, if you're struggling to answer that question a little bit, let me, let me give you a hint and how to, to diagnose that. Think about your prayer life. What kind of prayers do you typically pray? Bless me, bless me, bless me. Lord, please do this, please do that, please do this. Bless me, bless me, bless me. Whose agenda does that reveal? Jesus calls us to take up our cross to crucify our own personal agenda and follow him instead. Now, you may be thinking, because we, up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, we've dealt, we've dealt so many times with the love and compassion and grace and healing of Christ, and it's, it's like all of a sudden, boy, he, he, sure, he sure doesn't sound very loving with all this. And The fact is, is that Jesus knows us better than ourselves. What he knows is that ultimately this is the best kind of life. This is the best thing for us. This is the most loving thing for us. And again, ultimately it will be worth every step along the way. Every step. Well, finally, these haunting words by Christ in verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus is telling Peter and the disciples in the crowd, don't be ashamed of me and my agenda. Don't be ashamed of a suffering Messiah. And to us today, I think he would say it like this, don't be embarrassed by me. Don't be embarrassed by me and the price that I have paid for you? Notice also there's a very cool promise that's contained in Christ's words there. Because what he's saying in essence is that if you will hang tough, if you will hold fast to your commitment to him, if you will take up your cross and follow him, then you will get to share in his glory when he comes again. <laughs> now that's, I can't even imagine Cannot even imagine what that will be like. Jim Elliott, who lost his life as a missionary in Ecuador a number of years ago, recorded these words in his personal diary, and I'll 
conclude with this statement. He wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray together.